I don't know what it means, but to be told right before you step up, you got this tiger. <laughs> I don't know what tiger means here, but we'll show you some stripes here in a little bit. So <laughs> I've got it. One thing I think about with Tiger was the dog on the Brady Bunch was named Tiger. And then one time he just stopped being on the show. So I don't know if there was, there was never a special episode where the dog died, but I don't know. He might have died in real life or the, probably the actor holding out for more money. I don't know, but we'll, uh, we'll, we got this Tiger as Will just told me. So. Tonight we are in 2 Timothy. And more specifically, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 tonight. So if you're there, be there. If you're not, we'll be there anyway. So we'll get there in just a moment. As we have went through the New Testament, if you've been roughly paying attention, or maybe more so making notes along the way, as we talked about the Gospels, we talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It centered around Jesus' birth his life and his death and his resurrection. And then when we went into Acts, we talked about how to become a Christian. We've had a series of lessons that sort of dealt with various themes, and I'll use that word sort of wide-ranging, that dealt with Christianity. But the one thing that we've not really talked about at all was the role of the preacher. So I thought this would be a fitting place for it because... In 2 Timothy, we talk about, or probably the most famous verse, I would think in 2 Timothy, is when Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. But beyond that, or maybe before that, on this here, it says it gives a glimpse into the end of Paul's life. And it's hard to really find perfect dates on anything. I understand what these dates say up here, but I'm not necessarily able to confirm on a lot of the dates. But you can tell by the way that 2 Timothy is written, and especially 2 Timothy 4, that Paul is sort of near the end of his life uh, during this. And I think as we get older, no matter what older means, we have a tendency to look back and reflect on those things that maybe happened earlier in our life. And Paul does this in many ways with what Pat read there just a moment ago in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he talks about, uh, when, when Paul's writing and he talks about Timothy's mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice uh, and, and teaching of them and them teaching him. And I think all of us can probably right now think back, you're not a preacher, but you can think back to who it was that was instrumental in sort of teaching you about the Bible. It may have been a parent. It may have been a preacher. It may have been a Sunday school teacher. Or it might have been somebody at Bible school. It might have been somebody that you still see regular today. And it may be somebody who's long since been gone. But we all can sort of reflect back on those people and think about the role that those people play. It would be, it would be fair, I think, for all of us to say that without those people, we're probably not here. But that person is different for you than it is for me. But I think you see Paul mentioning this, and, 
As we see here in First and Second Timothy, is some of later writings of Paul's, his time is nearly up. But his exhortation here to Timothy is going to be what we see here on the board. That just because Paul's time is nearing an end doesn't mean that all time is nearing an end. Think about that for a second. If the preacher falls over dead, does the church cease to exist? If the answer to that is yes, then the church has problems. Because there should always be people that are willing and able to be able to fill that void. Now, will your next preacher be better or worse? That's immaterial to the discussion. The fact that there would need to be a next person. Part of what Paul did, and we talked a little bit about this last week, was Paul went all these missionary journeys and they established these churches, but Paul was writing back and Paul was expressing concern about what was happening in those churches. Paul wanted to be able to say when it's over for him, there's somebody else coming in. How many of you remember the preacher? Who is the, let me, let me re-ask that. Who is the first preacher that you remember? Anybody, anybody answer that question? It might have been here, but it might have been somebody else. Who is the preacher from, I'm not going to ask you will. You're too young uh, to, to answer this, all right? But who, can, who would be maybe the first one? Ben. Hunter Mill, it's the same for me as well at Maple Avenue. Yes. Jimmy Garner at Maple Avenue. Tony, do you remember him or is that too far back? Okay. Lucille. William Servants. William Servants? Okay. Was that here? Yeah. Okay. Anybody? Was that the same for? All right. Lucille, she said, what year would that have been? What year? I've changed. We're, we're full on on sprinkles now. But I ask you that for a reason. Because most of the answers that you would have given are people that are gone. Those people maybe are gone. I actually think the Garner man is still alive. But a lot of those people have long since passed. So then let me ask you the same question. Who's the second part of this back preacher? Who replaced that person that you remember? served this role. And the hope is not that we just always look back, but the hope would be that there would be people in the future that would fill in that role after we're gone. Because there's probably somebody that's going to get mentioned Ben's name or my name or Brett Baker's name or somebody else along the way. Those names, Mike Johnson or Jack Hall or somebody that was here at the Gospel Meeting. Those names would be mentioned as well. But the point of this, kind of all of this is to take with us that when you're finishing up, when you're almost done, you hope that it would be carried on by someone else. And so tonight we're going to look at two things. One, the first part of this is going to be about Paul's sort of 
message to Timothy about preaching. And then the second is Paul's kind of reflection on what he had done as well. So let's start with 1 Timothy. Or excuse me, I, these numbered books just kill me. I get it wrong every time. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Who do you care to read that? This feels like these five verses are somebody who's seen a lot telling somebody what they're about to see. Would you agree with that? You kind of this is somebody who's speaking from experience to somebody who's maybe getting started or young. And I got a few questions here that I want us to think about in these verses, and we'll talk through these and around these uh, as we go through. But first of all. What's the motivation? I know what the first question says. What motivation does Timothy have to preach the message? But if we want to adapt our class to sort of today as well, what's the motivation of anyone to preach the message? To share the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay, to share the good news of Jesus and Him crucified. What else? Okay, to, to, to bring others, to lead uh, them, to teach them, for them to know how to become a follower of Christ. What else? What other? Well, this is truly the most important thing you could tell somebody. If you told them about Jesus, you could tell them about the stock market, you could tell them about Wall Street or whatever you want to tell them, financially or whatever, about personal relationship. But the best thing you could tell somebody would be about Jesus. Okay. They'll eternally in heaven with God. Okay. And he also he's, he's telling that Brian. And we'll get to that part here too as well. Ben, I'm sorry. And the number one motivation for me would be love. Uh-huh. Love of God, so we want others to know of that love, so he can have even more love given back to him. And just indebtedness to what he has done for me and how can I but serve and work my life for him. So let's talk about a couple of things in that first question. First of all, the word <coughs> motivation. To be motivated to do something. Does that mean encouragement? All of us have participated in things that we weren't really truly motivated in. On the flip side, we've all done things where we've been extremely motivated. And we've been really into it. And so there has to be a motivation that comes with this. But I think the key motivation right here, and we've all sort of hit on this, but is at the second half of verse 1, where he says, I, well, the first part, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in the second part of verse 1, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and in his kingdom. And so we're not just talking about a sort of a random person, but somebody who is the actual judge. And so I'm not just going to be telling you to do this or to do that, but I'm telling you who is going to be the sort of final judgment of it. I've told you this before, but I have students who learn how to drive during the sophomore year when I have them in class. And their family members are teaching them. 
What do you think their parents are teaching them? What's the motivation of their parents when they're teaching those kids how to drive? Safety. Safety. They want them first and foremost to be safe. That's an important role there. But why then? Because it would be safer for them just not to drive. Why then would they teach the kids how to drive? If it's safer, you don't ever drive, you've never been a wreck, right? But if it's safer, why are they still teaching them how to do it? I'm sorry? Their lives would be hindered without them. You are, by giving them this ability, it's going to allow them to be able to do more. So there's a motivation to try and help them in a sense as well. And so this preaching and teaching is not just done to say, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. But what is the motivation? What is the true meaning of teaching people about Christianity? their lives would be fulfilled. Too often, I, I, it bothers me, and I, I, I fret and think about this, that too often we let Christianity just become that don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's like, if I just tell you all the things to not do, that doesn't sound like anything enjoyable at all. If we're not careful, then well, it's Christianity that doesn't seem very enjoyable. But there are so many good things that are from it. I don't feel like the church sometimes has failed at that. So we we de-emphasize the good because we're all afraid about the bad. Well, there needs to be a motivation to preach and teach. Now, does that other stuff come in handy? Well, let's then move a little bit further. Second question. What does it mean to preach with long-suffering and with teaching? Your version might say with complete patience and instruction right here. Why is that necessary? Why is it necessary to preach with long-suffering and with teaching? Most people don't. Okay? You know, that should be. You've got to sometimes you have to go over and right. over and over and teach and teach and teach. That's long stuff. And everybody's got their own speed and own pace at which they learn. Uh -huh. Some of them you got to go a little slower. Maybe you might have to get a milk for years sure. and years. But others are ready for steak and don't pretty quick. Sometimes you don't want to learn. Yeah. That's, that's the problem with school. Sometimes you don't want to learn. But long suffering, uh, right there, the older version might say with complete. Patience. I, I feel like patience is something that we struggle with. What is complete patience? Probably can't answer that because I don't know if any of us have it, right? With complete patience. But do we ever get aggravated with people who don't get it as quick as we think they should? It's a gentleness and compassion that comes with patience. Yep. Absolutely. Why do you think then, so I want to think about question two, why is Paul, old Paul, for the sake of this, telling this to young Timothy? So he will be patient, he won't give up. Ben, do you remember the first time you preached? I bet when you were getting ready for it, you probably thought this is the best lesson that anybody's ever heard. They've probably never heard this before. 
And whenever I get done, they're going to run to the front. We'll baptize 500 people in a church of 200. I will, that's how good it'll be, right? <laughs> but I guarantee you that you were preparing something that you thought would be effective and that people needed to know. I don't mean to cry. Was anybody baptized the first time you preached? No. I've never been preaching somebody came forward and be baptized. It's never happened. <laughs> now, when you first start something, when you first try something, when you first stand up, you feel like, man, I'm doing a great job, right? I'm doing a great job. Oh, this is the best lesson I have ever prepared. And when it's over, it's good job. Whatever. You know, that kind of thing. Well, I'll be better the next time. But the next time, what happens after a few of those sermons for maybe a preacher like Timothy when you're not maybe getting those results that you thought you were going to get? Yep. Not just from his mother and grandmother, right. but all the others. Because I, I would think that long suffering, you might go years of not converting anybody. Uh-huh. You talk about how, like she said, the patience and all the kindness and gentleness. You would have to really be level with that sure. to keep up what looks like a losing proposition. It's not Christianity, but I always think back to the Old Testament of Noah. It was sort of Noah, right? Uh, whatever. You know, however we want to interpret that. Think about that, but it's sort of that kind of thing. And so there's long-suffering, there's patience, but not just, well, eventually these clowns will figure it out, because the second part of that is teaching and instruction. You can't expect anybody to ever get it if you just quit teaching, if you quit instructing. On the flip side, what about the people that are already there? Do they need to be taught and instructed as well? It's an absolutely important thing as well. And that's, you know, we try to think about lessons that fit for people who maybe need a different kind of instruction. Yes? I've got to tell a story. This black preacher from Jackson, Yeah. He said, kill mom. He said, when mom and daddy come to the back of the face, she said, mom is just about to push him up against the wall. He said, if you ever act like that again, I'll come up right and take you back. He felt a little too good about it. Right. And so you can be exhorting, you know. Right. And he said, then I realized I, it's not about me. It's about right. the message. And he had these nights on that. Because he's 18 years old. Sure. Absolutely. So when we think about what is the message that's there, the job, you you sort of referenced this there a minute ago, but depending on what your version of the Bible says, convince, rebuke, exhort. I want to use those three words. The second two, I think, have maybe, or actually all three. What was the King James saying? Not convince, but rather what? In verse verse three there, in verse two, I'm sorry. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Let's think about the word convince first. What role is convincing in the job of a preacher? Why does a preacher have to convince? He wants to change your mind. Yeah. If you're not a believer. We're going to talk a little bit about this on Sunday, about Sunday morning, about the fact that we all have the ability to make decisions. You don't have to be here. You don't have to come. You don't have to ever show up anywhere. We have that ability. But the job is to convince. You've got to try and convince someone that this is 
important for them. So then the second word then, after convince, my version is rebuke, but does it say that in the old King James as well? What then does it mean to rebuke? To correct something. To correct something. Okay? So there's some convincing that you need to be part of this, but I can easily convince people to come be part of something if I'm just convincing, right? But some people are very convincing. That's how cults get started, right? You can get anybody to come in. But there has to be a rebuking, there has to be a recognition of, okay, why am I here? What, have I, what do I need to fix within me? That's the rebuke part. Now, unfortunately, sometimes the rebuke part gets a lot heavy, right? We start rebuke, rebuke, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And you're like, I can't do anything right. What's the third thing? Convince, rebuke. What's the third thing say? <laughs> Exhort, build up, encourage. We have to do more of that. There has to be exhortation. There has to be encouragement. There has to be building up. Because if I convince you to be here, and then I tell you all the things that you're wrong, and then I kick you and say, get out of here and figure it out. Are they coming back? And so this notion of sort of exhorting, there has to be some build up. You have to build anybody up. Maybe you like to be built up in your work. Maybe you like to be built up in your work. We all do, right? Like to be some encouragement to go out. Because Christianity is not an hour in here. It's not. It's 200 and some odd hours out there. Well, if you're not built up, how do you perform? I don't want to use that word, but I'm going to use that word. Out there. How are you going to be a Christian out there if the whole time you're not being exhorted and built up when you're here? Can you be? This is Paul sort of looking back saying, I honestly feel like this is Paul writing about some mistakes maybe he's made in the past. How do you encourage people to go out and go forward? Uh-huh. Let's go to verse 3. Verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. If they're not going to hear it from you, you're going to hear it from somebody. I think that's as important thing to take as anything else. Is that if you're going to just rebuke constantly, people aren't going to be interested in here. But if there's rebuke, this is what's wrong, but also here's what's right, and here's how you and I can all be better together, then that's going to help grow. But if it's not, if it's just, well, I don't like this, I'm going to go hear it from somewhere else, people will go. That's the same way it happens today. It happened back then as well. And Paul is telling Timothy here, you need to be aware of this, that people are going to look to go and hear something from some other place. Unfortunately, verse 4 says, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, be turned aside by fables. That's what the New King James Version says. But if you're preaching truth, will people leave truth? They absolutely will. People leave anything. 
They will depart from anything. And he's telling him to be, to be aware of this. But does that mean stop teaching truth? No. Convince, rebuke, exhort, or encourage. And people will leave. But you still have to do that. I mean, you have to work with those kinds of people. The last question up there, how could Timothy fulfill his ministry? I think you need to look at verse 5 for this. How can Timothy fulfill Verse 5. But be watchful in all things. Not some things, but in all things. Because there's so many things that people deal with, right? There's so many things that come in. There's so many things that people allow in. Watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist to fulfill your ministry. I think of Paul and Lystra. Mm-hmm. They carried him out of the city, left him for dead. He endured. He got up and went back into the city. And he continued. And he would visit that city again later. He endured. And he did it. Sure. Just because you beat me. Just because you said bad things about me. I don't mean I'm going to quit. And that's what he's telling me. I think he's extremely qualified to tell him. Sure. He's been down that road. This one says, but you must keep a clear head in everything. Endure suffering well, do the work of a missionary, and devote yourself completely to your work. Absolutely. And I think a preacher has to understand John 6 66, whenever Jesus says uh, to his disciples, <clears throat> we also go away. And they're not leaving the disciples, they're not leaving the preacher. Right. They're leaving Jesus, okay? Mm-hmm. Like if someone says, well, Daniel preached all about Jesus, and I just want to hear that anymore. I'm tired of that. I want him to tell me how good looking I am. That's not that's not Daniel's fault. Daniel preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. If somebody rejects that, they are rejecting Jesus. They are not rejecting they are not rejecting the preacher. They may say I'm like a preacher, you know, like sure. I don't close your wires and blah blah blah. <laughs> sure. That's that is that is there. And that's why I think you really can't take it personally. Well that's like here. You know, they, they, they take you will teach sound doctrine. Some people believe because it's not what they want to hear. They're going to go somewhere and get what they want. But now I would argue on the flip side that there are times when it's a seemed like in the past that sometimes preachers and Christians and church have almost thrived on hurting people's feelings, making them mad. And I think that can be just as negative as can be. I think that's where we get back to what we said there just a little bit, the rebuke. I mean, if I spend an hour every Sunday rebuke, 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 that's I mean, you, you can't just tell somebody they're bad all the time. That's what the sound doctrine comes in. It is, if absolutely. All, if you teach all the truth, then you're going to teach the good and the bad and everything. Sure, right? absolutely. That's what the sound doctrine comes in. And without the sound doctrine, then you don't have to let us down. Other thoughts? We got prayers on. Kevin, I talked about this the other day. If Jesus would have taken the woman, the very woman that's called the 
very active adultery. Everything in the world says that he can say, yes, take her out of stone. Everything, everything in the Jewish law says she should be taken out of stone. Right that instant. Jesus could have easily said, no. He could have said, yes, go ahead. You're right. Mm-hmm. Go, 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 He would have been perfectly within his right. But he showed us Christianity, which is completely different. We're not going to do that. That's, that's technically right. That's legally right. But we're going to show compassion. And that's where the preacher has to come in. He has to balance. It's a balance of compassion and the, and the, the fire you know, So there's nuance. There's right. that, 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 that's right. I hope that we see that. I, I think that's important for us to see. Other thoughts on that before we go into 6 through 8. So in 2 Timothy 4, <laughs> verses 6 through 8. Will you learn? For I am already being poured out as wine, and you are already being filled. Okay, so Paul goes with these first five verses to sort of encourage Timothy in the job that he's going to do. And then the next three verses, in a sense, Paul is sort of, I I read it almost as like taking a little bit of a step back uh, right there. To start with, what does Paul look forward to at the end of his life? said. He's looking forward to heaven. He, he, what's the three-word term? A crown of righteousness is what he uses right there. And I feel like Paul has spent a good bit of time far away from crowns, right? You know, sleeping on boats and, uh, and living in rough situations. Uh, there's something positive there at the end of his life. Before we get... Yeah. I just want to say, you have to believe to understand that you can know for sure you're going to heaven. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of people's problem, especially the church of Christ. They, I did, I hope I got it. Sure. Well, it's nothing wrong with hope, but there's nothing wrong with praying. But you, there's also nothing wrong with knowing. Sure. I know I can go to heaven. Not because I'm so good, because of Jesus. So why does Paul then want that? This is not going to show up very well, but I, I've, I've put this up here anyway. Why does Paul sort of seeing this crown of righteousness? Why three things? up here uh, to to deal with. The first thing on the left, and I know you're not going to be able to see this, but these are the sufferings of Paul. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I just want to throw out a few things here. You've heard this, you've read this, but what Paul has went through. But this is just a list of things. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, faced death often from the Jews. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in often fastings, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all of the churches. There's not one single thing in there that any of us liked. 
None of us would want to experience any of those. And Paul puts all of that there in in St. Corinthians. And then also says, and not only that, spend a whole lot of time worried about these other churches. And as well, those aren't necessarily bad things happening, but that's just worry topped on to issues that he had had. Could Paul speak to the challenges of the job? I think there absolutely, uh, he absolutely could uh, speak to that. In the second one, uh, you see there the, uh, I hope I'm in the right spot here. Yeah, the second one there is difficulties in life. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says he was given a thorn in the flesh and a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And we don't even know what that is, but there's something that was bothering him night and day, it would seem like. Uh, In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 15, abandoned by all his friends while he was in prison, which says, well, first of all, Paul was in prison. That's one thing. And then his friends had left him as well. Uh, Deprived even of life, no kindred spirit who would be concerned for the welfare of the Philippian church. We see all of these uh, things that Paul had mentioned uh, as well. But in all of these things, we would look at this and say, this was really bad. But in the third column, these are all the things that Paul mentions that he was thankful for. Gratitude that he showed for. <clears throat> he gave thanks for the Christians in Rome because their faith was proclaimed throughout the whole world. He gave thanks to the church in Corinth for they were enriched in everything by God in all utterance and all knowledge and that God will keep them strong and blameless until Christ's return. He gave thanks for the church at Ephesus for their faith and for their love of the saints. He gave thanks for the church of Philippi for their fellowship and the furtherance of the gospel, the monetary gift they sent to provide for him, and the profit which increases to their spiritual account. He gave thanks for the church at Colossae, for the hope of heaven which is laid up for them and for the fruit of the gospel. He gave thanks for the church of Thessalonica, for their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus in the presence of God. In, uh, the, for that the word of the Lord was preached by them everywhere they went and for their patience and faith as they endured persecutions and tribulations. Every single study that we've had over the last couple of months are those churches that Paul was giving thanks for. So in all of these difficulties, Paul was able to think about these on the other side. And I think that's important just to think about what Paul had went through and that he was still able to do that. I can tell you that these are very easy to emphasize. These are sometimes a lot harder to come up with. How many of us have a list this long of things that we've had to endure? We could make it. Oh, we absolutely could. We could all, if there's 20 things, we could write down 20 things that we've had to go through, right? I can come up with 25, 30, all those bad things, right? And we like to dwell This is what I've been dealing with. Sometimes we forget this column over here. Why is it important? For the preacher to think about this more than those. How important for the preacher, for Timothy, for whoever these letters are going to, to think about the gratitude more than the suffering and the difficulty. If you focus on the day, you're going to be a negative. The preacher's going to be negative. Your whole outlook is going to be negative. You have to stay focused on the positive and on the 
Absolutely. I think it's Chrysler. Yep. Christ could have called 12 leads to bank and played on the cross. Instead, he chose to give those people that they treated so bad. Yep. If you're going to be Christ like, you have to, you have to be thankful for all the things you've got. We can take what we hear and just kind of go with it, right? If the preacher stands before you and dwells on the negative, what's your week going to be thinking about? Not the negative, right? Now, are there negatives that need to be well on course? But if there's no sense of gratitude, if there's no sense of encouragement, if there's no joy in Christianity, how do express any joy when we go out further, right? Ben, you've said, you just spoke several times, you've said preach the word of God, and sometimes you need to talk about it, right? Or something sort of like that. If people see you in this negative sort of image, if Paul spent all of his time talking about this kind of stuff, who wants to be part of that? So Paul says, these kind of things may happen. We deal with it. We all have these kind of things, right? We all have ailments and issues and difficulties, but the sense of gratitude would maybe outweigh that. Anything else? Verses 6, 7, and 8, especially 6 and 7. Paul says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. What's Paul saying here? It's about over. He's easy. You, know, you think about when your cup's empty, the ice is settled at the bottom. You kind of Dumping the rest of that out. My departure of the, in the time of my departure is at hand, which he mentions. But in verse 7, a verse that all of us have heard numerous times, he says, what? I have what? I have fought a good fight. Then he says, what? I have finished the course. And what else? 
Three things right there. At no point does Paul mention here to Timothy, well, it was easy. He doesn't, right? He doesn't. He, he doesn't. He says, I've fought the good fight. I mean, we still use that term even today, right? But it, it's a fight. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a physical, I'm going to punch you kind of fight, but life sort of is that, right? You're going to fight through whatever it might be. I've finished the course. I, I, I got to the end, right? I've ran the whole way. How many, what's far as y'all have ever run? <laughs> it's a long way, right? It's hard, right? And there's no, it's no better than right there at the very end, right? He says, I have finished the course. I've finished the race. But he also says the third thing. There's a, I've fought the good fight and I've finished the course because we can all fight through things. We can all finish the course, but he says the third thing, does what? He's kept the faith. Even through the trials, the fight, even through the difficulties, the race, he's kept the faith. Now, go to the last verse. Verse 8. What's the day Paul mentions here? In verse 8. Oh, yeah. Judgment day. Judgment day, right? Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. I think that day is capitalized right there. That's when it's over, right? The judgment day right there. And he says, there's laid up for me that day. But I, he says here at the end of verse 8, not only to me, but who? But all those who love his appearing. This fits really well in verses 6 through 8 as a conclusion to verses 1 through 5. Because at no point in verses 1 through 5 does Paul tell Timothy that it would be easy. Never. He never does. He tells what he's going to face. He says the challenges that he's going to face. And he refer back to these other things as well. And he says that you're going to have to work through it. But at the end, is laid up for him a crown of righteousness. So the last question up there, what do you have to do to receive the same reward as Paul? Keep the faith. But they never mentioned you in the Bible. Paul's name comes up a lot. Think about all the things that Paul did, right? What do we know that Paul did? What can you tell me that Paul did? He had a lot of Christians. Well, that's bad. What else can we tell me about what Paul did? He stripped families of their food, their income, their homes, and separated families. Okay, well, they give me something good because that all sounds really terrible. Give me something good that Paul did. Faith? Give me some like, specifics on things that Paul did. He did? Okay. Established churches. Established churches. What else? Paul said there's a henceforth laid up for him a crown of righteousness. In most countries, how many people get to wear the crown? One person gets to wear the crown. The question is, says, not, verse 8 says, not just for him, but who? Everybody gets to pray. No, it's not mentioned in the Bible. They don't actually specifically say Maryland's name. But are there things that we've done in the past that are bad? Are there things that we can do that are good? Can we do 
what Paul said right there. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. Henceforth, when it is laid up for me, but not just me, but for you and for all who joy in his appearing. A crown of righteousness. My whole goal tonight was to talk about the preacher, which is me. But also to let you leave here not with a negative, not with a rebuke, but with an excitement that when I leave here, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I'm not really a jewelry person, but I like the notion of something like that. And so I hope that when we leave here as Christians that we think about that, but there's far more to celebrate. There's far more to be grateful for. And do not dwell on the negative, but rather go out with the positive. Because if you go out with that positive, somebody's going to see it. And somebody's going to be, hopefully, moved by that. I want what they're at. But anything we can do, anything, any way we can help you, whatever it may take, we invite you to come while we stand and sing. There's a great day coming, a great day coming.